When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'd like to know what this is all about. All right, sir. I'll get right to the... It has to do with that duplicate of your gun. What about it? Well, I find it hard to believe... Mrs. Stewart, see if you agree with me on this. I find it hard to believe that a man like General Hollister, who saved and cherished every war souvenir, even the smallest photograph... I just think it's strange that he was so careless as to allow his gun to be stolen. I mean, that pistol was the most famous single symbol of his whole legend. You agree with me, don't you? I don't know what you want me to say. Well, if it was me, if it was my gun, I would take very good care of that gun. I'd have it in my apartment where people could see it, and I would keep it polished, and I would keep it oiled, and I would keep it loaded. And when a certain Colonel Dutton came to see me and threatened to expose me, that's the gun that I would use. Well, if what you say is true, I mean, you searched. Where is that gun? That's what I ask myself. Where is the gun? Why not on public display? Why not in a glass case? Why not in front of thousands of people? And after we found Colonel Dutton's body, anybody else... You, me, anybody else, we'd have gotten rid of that gun. We found the bullet in the victim. And the ballistics check will match up the bullet with the gun. But somehow, General, something told me that you could never get rid of that gun. It meant too much to you. Because of your tremendous belief in yourself, you figured everyone would accept your story about having a duplicate made. Hi, this is Louis Lutton Jr. You're listening to TV Confidential. You know his car, his cigar, and his dog. It sits around the house and rules. But do you know who are you? His first name. Lieutenant. 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 Columbo. Robertson, welcome you back to TV Confidential Radio Talk Show about television is happy to bring you part two of a conversation that began last week with David Koenig. David Koenig, author of many books on pop culture, including Mouse Tales, a behind-the-ears look at Disneyland, and Danny Kaye, King of Gestures. David's latest book, Shooting Columbo, is a blow-by-blow account of the making of the Columbo television series and the development of the Columbo character both on NBC and on ABC. David's book includes a treasure trove of behind-the-scenes production information from all sorts of sources, including information on the constant changes in scripts, Peter Falk's endless battles with Universal over the production of the series, plus insight from series creators Richard Levinson and William Link, series producers Dean Hargrove and Everett Chambers, and series star Peter Falk himself shooting Columbo, available wherever books are sold through Bonaventure Press. You can also find 
Shooting Columbo, Amazon.com, BarnesNoble.com, wherever books are sold online. When we left off last week, David was telling us the backstory of Enough Rope. Enough Rope, the stage play that Levinson and Link wrote in 1962, starring Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, and Thomas Mitchell, with Thomas Mitchell playing Columbo. As we pick up the conversation, and, and again, going back to Happy Accidents, had the stage production of Enough Rope uh, taken off? In a lot of respects, we may not have seen the development of Columbo on television, but because it struggled and never was able to you know, make it to Broadway, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, the rights reverted back to Levinson and Link, and they were able to improve upon uh, the weaknesses of the third act, and the rest is history. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely, I never thought of it that way, but you're, you're absolutely right. Is who knows where it would have gone if it would have been a hit. And I think that mostly hinged on the uh, not just the, the strife between all parties involved, but also the loss of Thomas Mitchell, because he was sort of a Peter Falk-type character. You know, he brought that little sly, little, you know, brought fun into it rather than the Burt Freed, you know, uh, you know, straight-faced, stone-faced uh, uh, character that really made the whole thing click. So if, if he could have stuck around and Levinson and Link would have would have been able to work with the production in a way to, to improve it, you know, it probably could have gone to Broadway and I, I think would have been successful. This is apropos of nothing, but this this is one of those things you would not necessarily have known about before you talk to me today. But one of the characters who emerges in Shooting Columbo is Dean Hargrove, uh, the great producer, the, the showrunner of the Perry Mason franchise in the 1980s, you know, when ABC brought it back. And it, it's interesting, and... and Hargrove was the showrunner. Um, I think what you, you'll correct me. It was like the second or third, the second and third year, or the the, the middle seasons of Columbo. But uh, and he was originally set to produce the first season, but that's when, as for reasons you explained in shooting Columbo, Universal Studios executive Sid Scheinberg insisted that Levinson and Link produce the first year, and meanwhile. Hargrove was assigned another Universal show, McLeod. And I recently revisited all 40 episodes of McLeod. They're on, they're on IMDb TV. And the episode, I mean, as much as I like Dean Hargrove, Dean Hargrove produced the first season of McLeod. I thought it was a, I, I did not think it was the right fit for show and producer. And Hargrove basically confirms that in Shooting Columbo. Yeah, Dean did not enjoy his time working on McLeod. He thought Dennis Weaver was ter- you know, a nice guy. He enjoyed personally, but he just did not like the show. He liked nothing about McLeod, and I'm sure there's many people out there who love McLeod, but it was just not a match for Dean, and he could hardly wait to get off it. He said he understood why Scheinberg wanted Levinson and Link to have that first year of Columbo as he had been promised when he uh, agreed to write uh, the second pilot, Ransom for a Dead Man. Scheinberg went back on his word, uh, but he said he understood it, is that, uh, you know, Levinson and Link had created this character, this format. They knew mysteries. That was their whole life. He'd never really done a mystery-type show so that he could check in on them and learn how to do it while they did it, because they they expected Columbo to run for, for many years. It just had that, 
they, they could sense it had legs. So he, he went to purgatory <laughs> with, with Dennis Weaver for for one season, and uh, yeah, he he did not care for that that time at all, and and which is too bad because Dean is such a, a high level. I mean, excellent producer, and he he loves television. He is just he is the ultimate television professional, which made it extremely interesting when he came the next year, season two, when he started to be showrunner on Columbo, and one of his first assignments was to work with John Cassavetes, yes. who detested television. Yes. But they were, they were like two polar opposites. Um, you know, there's, this, there's Dean, who's this tall, handsome, you know, professional, you know, the, the perfect ideal television producer, and John Cassavetes, who's this smart mouth, you know, clever um, actor, you know, who's who hated to lower himself to do television, but did it because he desperately needed the money, especially from uh, from Peter Falk, who agreed if, if John did it, an episode of his series that he'd give him the money he needed to make his next movie. Dean Hargrove and John Cassavetes are two of the many personalities behind the scenes of Columbo that David Koenig brings to life in his excellent new book, Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumple Detective, a blow-by-blow account of the making of the Columbo television series both on NBC and on ABC that features a treasure trove of behind-the-scenes production information and anecdotes. Shooting Columbo, available wherever books are sold through Bonaventure Press, as well as Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, wherever books are sold online. Cassavetes does not come across well in Shooting Columbo. <laughs> yeah, well, his, yeah, his involvement with Columbo was, uh, you know, and the impact he had on it was in some ways, uh, personally, it was it was difficult. Cause yeah. he was, again, he did not care for television, so his relationship to a television show is going to be sort of awkward. Um, but in a sense, he was an integral part of Columbo being Columbo in that, in a way, he sort of gave Peter Falk the, the idea or the permission to do um, the series, even though he, he advised against it. He said, Peter, never, never, oh, don't do this. I did a series once. I would never do it again. You did it once. You know it's horrible. Never do a series. So Peter Falk originally declined to do it, but eventually watching John Cassavetes and the way he worked and how, you know, the ad-libness of it, the working of your own personality into your character, um, how you, um, if you're in charge of the show, you can invite all your buddies to appear, you know, uh, uh, Mike Lally and, uh, you know, Bruno Kirby and... <laughs> Vito Scotty and John Finnegan, all your buddies can come work with you when you're running your own show and you can keep them employed and all these other different, uh, you know, methods for acting and and running your business life. uh, Falk learned from Cassavetes. And going back to, we mentioned uh, some of the opulent mansions that were used both as exteriors and to some degree interiors which you go into detail in one of your chapters in shooting colombo one of the most famous scenes in cassavetti's colombo that that was another happy accident it came about because the network decided to expand 
that episode from a 90 minute to a two hour because they were running against a James Bond movie on ABC and they wanted to maintain the audience. And so he and Falk improvised this brilliant scene, which has nothing to do with the storyline, but it's fun to watch nonetheless. Oh, it is. It's because it's one of the one of the earliest scenes. And these type of scenes would become more common as the series went on. But it's the first scene that I could think of in which it's just a fun scene of Columbo being Columbo. And there's no, there's literally no plot being advanced. There's no clues being shared. There's no extra depth of personality that you're discovering. It's just a character you love just just riffing, you know, like playing jazz with uh, with Cass- his buddy Cassavetes. And that was... Uh, um, you know, because Peter Falk wanted a when they had to expand the episode, he wanted an extra scene with, you know, his buddy John Cassavetes and and Hargrove, who wrote the additional scenes, was like, I'm not writing another, you know, for that son of a gun, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not writing him another scene. Yeah, you know, forget it. And and Peter was like, okay, well, we'll do it ourselves. Just you know, get us the camera crew and whatnot. So they went up to a very famous mansion near Universal Studios. I think it's the same mansion that was used in the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air mm-hmm. show. Um, later, it had been used for many movies. Um, and they went up there, and they just winged it for, you know, an hour or however long they were up there. And it was basically a takeoff on an a impromptu ad-lib that Peter had done about a, a month or so before while filming another episode called The Most Crucial Game with Robert Culp in which he got his shoes wet in a swimming pool in an earlier scene. And then in the next scene, he's filming, and he, out of nowhere, it's not in the script, but he, he's talking to a, a lawyer, somebody, you know, a very proper man, and asks him how much he paid for his shoes. And the other actor's like, what? what, what is that? He's like, I'll just play with it. Let's see where we can take this. And, and that became basically the premise of his scene with Cassavetes, was as he walks in, and, and for no particular purpose and just start to ask him how much he paid for his house and how much you know how much he paid for his furniture and how much is how much is his salary and you know just basically takes off on that premise and at the end just you know has run out of things to talk about so just ask him for his autograph and leaves but it's so much fun because you know it's it's just Columbo being Columbo. If you're a fan of Columbo you will not run out of things to talk about after you read Shooting Columbo, Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpel Detective by our guest David Koenig. Shooting Columbo available wherever books are sold as well as Amazon.com. Stay with us folks. We'll be right back. Before we say goodbye I want to talk a little bit about um, pseudo, uh, not, not, a Blueprint for Murder which is the one and only film that Peter Falk ever directed. And you go, you go even deeper into the backstory um, than Mark Dwidziak does in, Col- in The Columbo File. And it goes back to and, and my, my takeaway here is because we, we talked about how one of the things that made Peter Falk Peter Falk was – I mean, which made him both sympathetic and exasperating at the same time was he could not make up his mind. And when you're the director, you have to know the answer to everything. And, and Falk quickly found out that he's not suitable to be dire- uh, be a director in the long run. Yeah, and that was that was not only the only Col- Columbo he directed. That was the only anything yeah. he ever directed because he he 
discovered, as you say, people are just going to come to you and say, hey, how do you want this set up? Hey, how do you want us to do that? How do you want me to, hey, should I read this line, you know, loud or quiet or what? And he's like, I'm, 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 I'm. <laughs> he's someone who would come to the set every morning without his script memorized. He would learn it on the fly. And he'd take a chunk of dialogue and, and walk around out by his trailer, pace back and forth, saying the line different ways with different words and different inflections. He ended up rewriting every single line that was ever written for him for Columbo. And then on the set, they'd start take one and he'd, do it one way, and he goes, I want to try it a different way, and then take two and take three, and he'd just do it over and over and over again, and they would have to indulge him, and sometimes, uh, you know, it'd be five takes, and sometimes it'd be 40 takes, um, especially as the series went on, but as director, that was, you know, that's not an option. <laughs> he had to make all the decisions instantly, and it, was, it sort of drove him crazy. What's interesting is that Levinson and Link thought that Peter did a good job directing Blueprint for Murder because he ended up, even though they gave him the worst possible episode to shoot because it was it was on location at a construction site and and there was a lot of noise and dirt and a lot of complications that he had to contend with. Levinson and Lang thought that Peter did a good job as a director, factoring in all that stuff, but was kind of off in his performance. Falk thought the opposite. Yeah, and I, and I think Peter's correct in this, in, in watching the show back, is that he seemed more calm and under control and fresh doing the scenes. Sometimes, especially in the later runs, it's like you can tell he's rehearsed this scene 4,000 times because it's, it's like a little, a little too much, a little too Columbo, a little too, uh, uh, the, the quirks are a little too quirky, and he didn't have time to play with it that much because he had to get on to the next scene. There were, there were no options, as I said, for, for 10 takes of everything because he was in charge now. He was, he was directing himself, and it's like, okay, that's good you know, moving on, and it'd be two or three takes before he, he got one he was pleased with or acceptable to him. What are you working on next? Uh, promoting uh, Gina Colombo. <laughs> Letting the world know that uh, if I'm going to, you know, if I'm going to spend, you know, all, all these years writing it, I want to make sure people know about it, and have, and if somebody's going to take the risk to, to publish it, I, I owe it to them to, to let the world know, especially when it's a book that um, I, it turned out so pleased me how, how well it turned out and how much information there is that, that had never been published before that I think anyone who loves Columbo will really um, be grateful to have found this book. David Koenig is the author of Shooting Columbo, Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpel Detective. If you are a Columbo aficionado like I am, this is a book you want in your collection. Shooting Columbo, available wherever books are sold as well as Amazon.com. David Koenig, it's been eight years since your last appearance. We'll make sure you're back on TV Confidential a lot sooner, a lot sooner than that. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you. I loved it. Greg Airbar will join us for a DVD report next on TV Confidential. One more item. If you love Ella Fitzgerald, our friend Jeffrey Mark celebrates the music of the First Lady of Song every week on Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella. You can hear Jeffrey Mark Plays Ella on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you find podcasts. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411. Or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.